Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, February 4th, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 14. I've wanted for a while to make an episode about waste, and I think it came from just hearing no waste a lot. We talk about zero waste and how to reduce waste and how waste is a problem and waste is getting into the environment. And I feel like with some of the processes that I've learned in farming, you can undercut a lot of those linear waste systems. So that's where I got the idea to make this podcast. But when I started to compost, that was really the revolutionary thing that uh, it taught me that food can actually be an asset and it, it just it completely changed my perspective of what that food waste was. The idea of waste, it just changed for me. And so composting and home composting, of course, is an individual act, but it does help me remind myself that we have to think critically about what the collective solution is to cycling our waste because waste is a cultural problem. It's a systemic problem. It's an economic problem. So all of those things involve the political because we live in this collective world together. So when we talk about zero waste and reducing waste, it's almost always like an individual choice, a consumer choice. And I don't believe that that's enough to sway the system. We need larger structures and larger bans on the production of these non-biodegradable items. And especially the ones that are derived from petrochemicals, such as styrofoam or plastic. So I want to be mindful of the ways to resist the linear waste system and then use that mindfulness to explore new kinds of systems. And that's the basis of what I'm going to talk about today. The first thing I think about is what our current waste system looks like. So there's the exploitation of resources, which has its own, that deserves its own space to be talked about as creating creating spaces of waste, spaces that were once lush, spaces that were growing with native plants, you know, destroyed by war and imperialism to to actually get those resources to create the production to create the waste. So that, you know, I want to give that its own space. But of course, our current waste system looks like the disposal of what we perceive as waste. In order to talk about the end of the linear waste system, we have to start by talking about the beginning, which is production. So one of the mainstays of production would be agriculture. We have monocrop and factory farms that deplete the soil fertility and destroy the soil structure. We have massive tillage. And again, those same exploitation elements apply to agriculture, of course. And that is clear throughout history. Now we use fossil fuel-derived pest controls, fertilizers. We pollute the environment downstream and disrupt the local ecology, as well as the agriculture system being reliant on fossil fuels for most aspects of the entire process. The plastic packaging involved, the distribution, the larger issues, workers' exploitation, the systemic sexual assault of women who are farm workers, and it goes on. There are costs, there are hidden costs to agriculture and to production that create waste. Beyond the food scrap itself, 
beyond the stem of broccoli that you're not going to use in your dish. There are other costs that are associated with how we grow food. And I'm being very brief because there's the larger waste systems that we're talking about. We produce more than just food at this point. But agriculture itself has its own huge, you could go on and on, issues in, the, in those regards. Then you have the mass production of plastics, which is a process that is roughly only 60 years old. And it has created 8.3 billion metric tons of plastic in six decades. Out of those 8.3 billion, 6.3 billion is already in the waste system or out of use. And within that 6.3 billion, only 9% has been recycled in the U.S. In China, in Europe, those are a little higher. You get into the teens and 20s, but still not, not an impressive amount uh, is recycled. And the vast majority of, of plastic is already either in landfills or just in the environment in its plastic form unable to change states of matter, unable to break down. Recycling, as you can see from these simple numbers, is a, a band-aid solution. There's a much larger problem culturally, globally, about how we think about waste. And this, of course, is intimately tied to the economic system that globally reigns. So I think we should be asking the questions of who is producing this plastic and how can we get them to stop? Because consumers have choices, but consumer boycotts, even on a massive level, even the state of California banning plastic bags is not enough to stop this. It's something that goes a lot deeper into questioning who controls production and who could stop production. Just to name a few, here are within the top 10 plastics and resins manufacturers globally. You have ExxonMobil with global sales at $236 billion. And you might have heard me talk about ExxonMobil in my episode about lead and Standard Oil Company definitely have some long systemic issues with that company and their pollution of different areas in the world, really. Another one is Dow Chemical with global sales at $49 billion. So these are the same global players that we are familiar with who have been polluting the environment in a multitude of ways and wielding their power and their capital to make sure that we are dependent on their fossil fuels. So in the same way, waste is created by these, these producers, and uh, we have to think about waste in terms of how we attack them and how we can actually alter their production, which we hopefully would, would like to stop. Landfills are a huge problem because they only grow larger. They don't, they don't break down. So we're using more and more space to house our waste. And when you have organic matter sitting and rotting in the same place as electronics and other large items, metals that are breaking down in the rain, in the heat, 
what you're doing is creating greenhouse gases. When organic matter is left uncomposted, just uncovered and out in a pile with other toxins, it's going to rot. And that rotting is going to give off more greenhouse gases, which we don't want as well as the leaching of the toxic chemicals into the water systems and, and other such environmental issues that come from landfills. So we have a landfill system which is not helping us at all. It's In fact, it's hurting us, and it's a non-solution. Another similar trend in the past 10 years or so is trash incinerators. They tried to put one here in the state of Rhode Island, and I don't believe they were successful with that proposal. But basically trash gets burned into ash, which is turned and creates roads and parking lots and gives off gases like nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxides, which are the things that you'll see in smog and acid rain and uh, mercury dioxins, lots of things that are, again, produced. Those items are produced, and what we're having a problem with is breaking those things down. So uh, we need to address how production and the end of the cycle are communicating with each other and how waste is pretty much unfiltered. You have organic matter going in with these, these other... Uh, toxic chemicals, so uh, the organic matter cannot be used once it is contaminated with uh, the, those other things. So the fact that they're all going into the same waste stream is is obviously a huge problem, and trash incinerators does not fix that problem. In fact, it continues to give off, you know, more problems, more uh, tangential problems, air quality problems, for instance. You know, where does, the, where does the gas go from the trash being incinerated? And who is breathing that in? We also have huge transport costs and the carbon that's used in processing our waste. We have trash pickup once a week where I live. For you, it may be different, but nonetheless, it's picked up by a truck. It has to go somewhere and it has to be processed in a plant that has to use energy to do all of that. So the processing of trash and even moving it to a waste site is costing. Again, in a hidden way, it seems like it's a public cost and it brings the trash away from us so that we don't have to experience the trash. But the trash is not being disposed of. Even the word disposal where is the trash going? And like, do we ever think about that? Is that ever something that we think about when we toss something in the trash? Tossing something in the trash sounds kind of flippant, right? And that's what we call it. We toss something in the trash and we never think about it again. Or when you're moving and you're cleaning all your stuff out, at that point you're so frustrated because you're like, I have so much to do that you have a trash pile and anything that you don't want goes into that pile and you never think about the stuff that you left on the stoop that day before you moved ever again. You're just like, I feel so good I got rid of that stuff. Because we don't like a lot of things attached to us. In the end, we really want to shed the things that we consume. And if we started to think about that in a different way, maybe we could start to address waste. Now, everything I've mentioned has been very human-centric, and I think that that's an important part of the story, but there's also the fact that we are part of the larger Earth system, which is also alive and also needs to be working in balance. 
So what happens when these plastics or electronics or other items are not disposed of? Styrofoam. They're eaten by other animals, both on the land and in the water. And that results in death and disease. We see a lot of death and disease. We see the rates rising. We see all kinds of imbalances that are present. Bacterial overgrowth, algae. They're, it just, again, these, these concepts are huge. We could get into the nitty-gritty of each one of them. To me, it saddens me to think about styrofoam in the year 2500 or the year 3000, about styrofoam pieces just being floating around, eaten by birds. It scares me that we don't have any way to say no other than to not purchase those items. But again, I just feel like that falls short in it when I think of the future I I don't think that my choices will necessarily be enough and so obviously this whole process degrades the environment of which we are a part so it's a problem that is beyond urgent and it ignores that we are a part of this whole biosphere and it ignores that we're part of the earth, which is obviously something that goes right into the whole ideologies of capitalism and how we justify how we live every day. Just knowing all of these things now, having access to the information and still not being able to change the machine parts in the life that we live and not, not being able to resist in the ways that we might want to. Or maybe just being able to do it individually but not collectively, which would be the ultimate goal. We also see waste as a symptom of overpopulation. We hear that one a lot, that humans are overpopulated, we have to control the population of humans, and in reality what this really has to do more with is profit-driven capitalism. It's systemically designed to create waste. It creates whole psychologies around encouraging us to consume more and consume often and shames us when we don't want those things. So it's a, it's a very deep-seated element. And we use overpopulation as a way to absolve ourselves from critically thinking about the problem. And I think that it's also purported by those very same people who have a vested interest, or companies rather, that have a vested interest in continuing things the way they are. They would rather point the finger at something that has no basis in reality and have us believe that and buy into that as well and make money off of both the production of things that are harmful for us and the production of medicines that will cure us. You know, Dow Chemical, they're... They're a pharmaceutical company as well. So there's some really sinister stuff going on here that I think should be we should be connecting the dots between all of these industries and how they're related to energy, how they're related to dependency, and how we can take back our power because that's the most important thing. We want to get free from these people. We don't want them to be... We don't want to spend our whole lives fighting them just for them to win. We need to create alternative structures that we can implement, things that are real and tangible, and change, at least in small collectives, start with what is attainable and, and actually change our lives through, through the change in those systems and abiding by those systems. So this brought me to thinking about what a cyclical waste system could look like. 
And I think that waste could be seen as a resource, of course, instead of a liability. Instead of something that could make us sick or participate in ecological destruction, we could be thinking about waste as how we do in composting, which is we think of it as a massive resource. We call compost black gold. Why is that? Because it's extremely valuable. And I mean, that's not a, it's not a perfect metaphor, gold, as something resourceful because of gold's connection to colonialism. But we call it black gold for the, the idea that, hey, this thing holds value. This thing that you see as dirt, as you see as innate, we see as living and cycling the nutrients for our plants to make sure that our plant has the proper balance and that our plant is cycling right with those microbes and, and whatnot. So we see waste as a resource instead of a liability, and this changes what we can do with that because waste is excess. Waste is not used again. Waste has no end. Resources are things that we want to use again. So that's what's inherent in that cycle. And if you think about it, waste is really something that we invented when we perceive that a resource has lost its value, we call it waste. But the natural world does not understand waste because it doesn't exist. In nature, we have closed loop cycles. Everything has a decomposer. Everything is food for something else. Everything is grown in the death of things. And the death of things is necessary, even in terms of the soil food web and the ways in which Nutrients are cycled through microbes and protozoa and nematodes and small birds and small animals. That whole cycle happening there is actually how things are born anew through, those, through that death. And it's a death that we can't see or observe, but it is a death. And so we need to just think of energy and resources as something that can be cycled something that can constantly move like the tides and, and rather than something that can be used and excreted. So the end of one life cycle is always the start of another. And that is true for other beings that are sentient here on earth. And that's true for us in our, in our own individual way. As I mentioned, I'm a very practical thinking person. When it comes to these things, I love to talk about them and I can talk about them in a very lofty way sometimes when I'm with the right people. But feasibly, how would you implement something like this? How do you make this possible for people who don't have the time, who work all the time, who have children? How do you, how do you change a system how do you do more than just inspire individuals? How do you get individuals to conspire together? So that always is my next thought with zero waste. You know, how do you take the burden off of the individual and start to talk about it in a different way? So the first thing, of course, is we can do huge things with food waste composting, including in public settings like restaurants and coffee shops. Some of you know that I, with my partner, started a compost program and we're actually taking in restaurant food waste from local, local spots and the chickens are eating greens and fruits and getting a really biodiverse diet as well as the worms that are in the soil and just out in nature. There's a lot of things that are benefiting from the food waste besides our birds. Um, and we're of course composting all of that 
with the eventual end of making soil for the spring garden. So we've been composting dry material like hay and leaves to go along with this food waste. And that project is maturing and in a few months it'll be ready. It'll be soil form, it'll be transformed into bunch of nutrients and microbes and life that will will help my plants grow. So of course food waste composting I think is a place where we could just take all of that food waste, reroute it from the waste stream where all the other toxic stuff is going and be able to deal with it and turn it into the resource that we know that it is. Similarly I feel the same way about animal waste. There's a lot that can be done with animal waste whether it's actual animal pieces, uh, which can be composted through an anaerobic composting system such as bokashi. So you can compost bones and dairy and things like that, as well as animal waste. People who keep animals know that their waste is a great fertilizer, but it must be composted. So all of these elements together, I think could make a huge, huge dent in what even ends up in a landfill. I've also done a good amount of research about aquaponic systems. So these are filtration systems that use plants and fish to actually properly cycle nutrients. And the idea is to eventually produce food with the system. So you have uh, waste water that comes into the system and then you have this cycling of nutrients that happens, the fish eating decomposing matter, the fish fertilizing the water, the water growing new plants. So this is supposed to model a balanced ecosystem and it works great even in a school setting to show exactly what happens in the cycle of life. So it's a perfect little microcosm of what a cyclical waste cycle can look like. As well as utilizing plants and animals to do this cycling, you can also utilize mushrooms. And the whole realm of mycology, uh, Paul Stamet's work is really important to my understanding of this. Basically, you can make filters with, with mycelial mats, which are the, the larger structure. Mushrooms are just the reproductive organ of mycelium, which is the organism, and that's what gives your soil an architecture. So you could grow mushrooms, you can grow mycelium onto bags of uh, burlap or other mediums and actually use that as a filter for water. Mycology seems to be a very important resource to dealing with the effects of toxic waste because mushrooms are such good decomposers. That's evolutionarily what they're very good at and they can break down some things that many other organisms will simply get sick and die from. So they have a really amazing resilience factor that we should be utilizing. They also are the cornerstone of jumpstarting an ecosystem. So if you have had a an area that has been affected by toxic waste and where plants can no longer thrive because of a, an issue, bringing in mushrooms is often the way to get other animals to come eat there and drop seeds there and actually get plants to, to start growing. Very interesting stuff and also deserving of its own space. And the last element I want to talk about in terms of implementation 
is the way that we design our homes or our buildings. I did take a lot of sustainability courses when I was in school because I any elective that I could, I wanted to get more information about how to actually build things that take a different approach to waste because our homes and our lives are all set up for this dependency system and this waste system. So in order to change our relationship with them, eventually I think about the way that buildings would have to change structure. So I think about building new homes with cyclical waste systems or retrofitting existing systems and turning them into cyclical waste systems. Things like compost toilets and creative gray water systems to filter wastewater, such as the the aquaponics and other things. You can find a lot on YouTube, even if you just start typing away at these terms, you'll find people who have done it themselves globally and they can share their stories and their systems. Very interesting stuff to check out and I highly recommend just getting into it. But when I first learned about sustainable homes, there was the LEED certified type of sustainability, which is really just, again, within the boundaries of the capitalist system. And then there's things that are much more radical in terms of the way that people have built homes. So things like the Earthship model really captured me. And so I'm going to explain a little bit about Earthships and maybe what we can use out of the information that's been gained thus far about this. What we now call an Earthship is a passive solar house that is made of both natural and upcycled materials such as earth-packed tires. And the person who really did this research and this architecture themselves was an architect named Michael Reynolds, and he continues to do this work around the world. But an Earthship addresses six main principles of human needs, which I think are a lot more in line with reducing waste and also producing energy. So those two things, of course, going together. Thermal and solar heating and cooling is the first thing. Solar and wind electricity is the second. Self-contained sewage treatment is the third. Building with natural and recycled materials is the fourth. Water harvesting and long-term storage of that water. And lastly, some internal food production capabilities, depending on where you are. These things are intended to be fully off the grid. And you're not relying on public utilities or fossil fuels to live. So obviously this is a hugely radical system, and you're like, how is that possible? There's a lot to it. But one thing that I wanted to really just focus on for a second is the Earthship water system because it catches water. The home itself catches water. It's designed to catch water. It reuses water, and it treats wastewater. So that is three things right there that we don't do in a regular home with water. Uh, So obviously it's egregious. What's remarkable about the first Earthships is that they were made in Taos, New Mexico, where they only get eight inches of rain, yet they were able to supply their water needs for the entire year with just what was collected from their roof. So obviously that was 
done by a well-designed catchment system for water conservation and water reuse. Typical person in the United States uses about 80 gallons of water a day, and the Earthship is designed to drop that use per day to 20 gallons. So with a lower water usage, even Earthships that have low rainfall are able to capture enough water from the roof to be self-sufficient. So that will be really helpful in areas that are experiencing desertification. There are many ways in which Earthships are trying to model Earth systems and work with Earth systems rather than to control them or be on top of them or always have access to them, which again is a very human-dominated, male-dominated way of thinking. Earthships are a very compelling and well-designed home system that I think we can learn a lot from. We can apply these passive energy principles to a lot of the buildings that we construct or the communities that we construct in the future. And these types of systemic changes will make us more energy sovereign. And when we have control over production, it seems like we also have control over the waste that we're producing and how we treat that waste and how we get that waste to go back into the system and create a positive instead of just creating many negatives, which is what we are experiencing right now is the bombardment of all of those negative costs. They're coming back to haunt us because we didn't address them. And that is an unfortunate, it's an unfortunate generation to be in because it does feel like it's swallowing us. And because we have such a lack of power, that makes us feel like we can't do anything about it. And there's this despair cycle that can happen which I would, of course, like to avoid. So I'm trying to create alternatives through the things that I know. Whether they're in small ways or large ways is yet undetermined. I can't, I can't say that they don't have value when I see how the information spreading is important to the way that people treat things. But I would like to see us move together collectively to address waste and to change our relationship with it in the ways that we can. Hopefully in the near future, we'll be able to take some of the mindfulness that we have towards these systems and actually have the time, the energy, the resources, the land to be able to explore these new systems that begin to heal our relationship with the earth. And it's definitely an uphill battle as I see us more reliant on technology to solve these problems rather than to look at the way that things are and develop our technologies around those systems. I still think that technology has its intersections with patriarchy and capitalism that do not make it a panacea solution to our ecological problems. I don't think we can code our way out of this one. I think that exploring systems that model what we know is already perfectly balanced are the best ways to address waste and the best ways to address production. And this podcast doesn't have a lot of answers because I don't have a lot of answers. I only know what I can do with what's in front of me. And I have this information, so I'm sharing it. And I hope that it changes the way that you think about waste or the way that you think about the systems that we have set up for us. And maybe just that mindfulness will uh, expand and 
and move out into the network and, and help us collectively regain some of our power. And we also have people that are in dire need of something to be done about this because the, there's a disproportion with which people experience these toxic sites. For some people, trash disappears. For other people, trash is put in their backyard. So when it comes to fixing this problem, it's not a we as in a collective, we're all the same. We all have the same experience of waste because that's absolutely not the case. Instead, we need to be organizing around the communities that are most impacted by pollution. And if you look around, those communities are already organizing themselves as well. So we need to be a part of that solidarity movement and understand that when people are fighting for their basic environment, that the wheels should stop turning. That is a dire situation. That is something that needs to stop, or we need to stop until it is fixed. I, I see it as very serious because I see the impacts and I can see how communities of color particularly have to live through this with no one acknowledging their pain and their suffering and their health problems. Uh, and they're instead blamed for it. So when we talk about waste, we also have to talk about who is affected by it and who is affected by it most and what can we do to serve those communities first and what can we do to attack the, the white communities that are obviously the perpetrators and, and the capitalists that are, are the perpetrators of this. Because they are perpetrators, it is a system-wide problem, something that we have lost our power in. So when I try to do individual acts as well as collective acts, that is always on my mind, who is most impacted and how do we approach the problem through that lens in, in correcting that and creating reparations for that, creating reparations for indigenous communities who deal with systemic waste uh, being dumped on them, nuclear waste being only tested on the days when the wind blows towards the reservation. I mean, this is, it's perpetrated. It's not, it's not just flippant. We forgot that styrofoam doesn't degrade. It, it's very intentional and purposeful. And we should be concerned to the point of being irate. So that's the point that I'm at. And, uh, and I'm sharing this so that hopefully we can do something about it. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone. This concludes episode 14 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Have a good one.